You can be seated. We thank you, Father, for the recent uh, uh, progress that our city has made in crime and um, arresting and, and beginning the prosecution of uh, uh, a street gang that has uh, brought so much terror uh, on our city. And we pray, Father, that justice would be done, that those who are guilty would receive fair sentences, and those, if there's any indicted, that were not participants that truth would show them free. We pray, Father, for those residents who've been harmed. We pray for those residents who have lost family members. We pray, Father, um, that they would find peace and hope that cannot be taken from them. Everything in this life is fleeting and we pray that they would find a hope in eternal life in a king who will reign in justice and righteousness. Father, we pray for the island of Puerto Rico. We pray, Father, that they would, their leaders and, and the leaders of our federal government would uh, make pains to Help them to recuperate and repair from the hurricanes in 2017. Father, forgive us as a nation that we abandon our own people. We pray, Father, that um, despite their losses and despite the pains and pressure points, that you would grow your gospel there. So they would find a, a hope that is beyond economics and, and, and beyond worldly success. We thank you, Father, for the Christian mission and the Christian churches in Puerto Rico. We pray in particular this morning for Iglesia Bautista Ciudad de Dios and for our, our friend uh, Hector Candelario. And we ask, Father, that the preaching of the gospel there would be, would be faithful and it would be honest and that it would be uh, impactful by your spirit to the salvation of many souls. We pray for good theology across the island, healthy churches where much is made of the name of Jesus. We pray, Father, as we turn now to your word, that you would continue to make us the people of your word by shaping us and forming us after your spoken message to us. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're in Genesis, so if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 4 uh, in your Bible, or click, swipe, tap, you, you do you. Um, it's the very beginning of your Bible, though. Just uh, open it up, find that first book, and find the big number four, and that's where we're going to be this morning. Um, I do have fewer notes this morning than the last couple weeks, so um, we'll see if that amounts to anything. <clears throat> the, 
Let's read the text and then we'll dig in. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. And Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother, uh, spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered uh, Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other Zilah. Adah bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zilha, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Where do you come from? We have members and uh, attenders here born in Nigeria, Ghana, Thailand, Uganda, India. But even those who were 
born in the United States, uh, we know that we are part of a heritage. Some of you know I've been working to trace my history in, in fits and starts and my wife's history, uh, my mother's family, uh, Bavaria and Rotenburg through New York City to Maryland to suburban Philadelphia on one line. Two others came from England and met in Cleveland, one by way of Youngstown and the other by way of Canada before heading to Maryland where they would connect with the German line. My dad's family is more of the, the westward expansion, tracing two lines, one from Virginia, one from D.C. One of those came through Ohio, one through Kentucky, meeting in Kansas City, but another line snakes back to Baden-Württemberg, just west of Bavaria, only a few miles from my mom's family in Bavaria. And we trace Sarah's family, well, to Norway, they're all Norwegian, but, <laughs> but, but we, we discovered the tiny town of Vernes which may or may not be recognized anymore, or found on a map, but it's on the island of Fung. And Halver Nielsen came to Illinois, and from there he became Harvey Barnes. A little bit of a stretch, but that's what he did. We all have a story. We have a history. We have an ancestry. Some of those stories we know well. Some we don't know well. Some are famous. Some are infamous. Most are merely ordinary but they say something about how we got here, what we're doing here, and why we are a bit of the way we are. And if you put all of our stories together, if you could do that, I think the whole would have more explanatory power than the sum of the parts. All of history, all of culture is built on our interlocking stories. Modern genomics has demonstrated what Christians have known since the beginning. We are all one family. We are part of one another. Your history is my history. And my history is yours, if we care to look. There's neat facts in there, like uh, uh, Caleb Thompson and I are 11th cousins, or something like that. But, but, but there's also facts like the, the war in Ukraine is being fought by relatives against relatives. And, and I don't just mean each other. I, I mean by my relatives and your relatives. The famine in Sudan is hurting your family and my family. Our relatives, our relatives died in the concentration camps, were brutalized in the Inquisition, and were killed in the eruption of Krakatau. And our relatives were all switch guards and Catholic inquisitors and neighbors who didn't turn to help neighbors when the lava and ash flowed. We belong to each other, and we are inseparable. The Hebrews knew that, and the Bible is full of genealogies, connecting one generation back to another, often stopping to gaze at a more significant figure or to use an otherwise insignificant figure to illustrate an important truth. And that's why I urge you, when you come to them in your Bible reading plan, read those genealogies in your Bible. They, they aren't the most exciting passages on the surface and sometimes not even under the surface, but 
There are often nuggets of gold in them if you give them a chance. Now, Genesis 4 is the first genealogy in the Bible. It might not feel like it because of the amount of stoppage time that outpaces the game time by quite a bit, but that's what it is. It's a genealogy. It's the genealogy of Adam telling what became of his progeny, his children. Most sections of Genesis begin with a genealogy. This one happens to also end with a genealogy. It's wrapping up what happened to the heavens and the earth that were deemed so very good. And Genesis 4 teaches us that sin has generational consequences. Our crimes and our errors don't affect only us. Your sins do not affect only you. But every relationship is put out of joint. In Genesis 4, that's seen most prominently in the family. But beyond that, Beyond that family, it also points us to sin's effects on culture and its tendency to accumulate and continue. So let's unpack that. We'll start with and spend most of our time with that first one, the family, because that's what makes up the majority of the text. Genesis 4 begins with, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore, and that becomes almost a stock phrase in the Bible. If you've read a lot of it, you know, but especially in Genesis, a man knew a woman, generally his wife, meaning they engaged in certain activities that can produce babies, and lo and behold, the woman does become pregnant, and she gives birth to a child. They have two children that come in for mention, uh, at the outset at least, Cain and Abel. The name Cain sounds a bit reminiscent of the Hebrew word for get, and since that's how Eve thinks about it, she gets a man with the help of the Lord, she thinks that's an appropriate name. She doesn't give an explanation for Abel's name, but it's the word that's probably most famous in the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, or mist, or vapor, or smoke, the image of what is fleeting and futile and only lasts for a moment. Eve is ecstatic about her first child. Most mothers are. Uh, But there's something of the shock, I think, perhaps, of a first-time mother who has never witnessed or experienced or seen or heard of anyone else doing anything like that that maybe creeps through her words a bit. We get this brief note that that Cain was a farmer and and, and Abel was a shepherd, which is important because it sets up the narrative that happens next. But it's also significant because they were tending to the work of creation. Tending the earth like his father was Cain and exercising dominion over the animals of the earth was Abel. Everything so far is relatively positive. Yeah, Genesis 3 was bad, but maybe there's a a hint of hope here. Maybe there's a a sense that the the sins of the father and, and mother can be bypassed. But then it's time to offer sacrifices, which probably means it's harvest season, maybe around this time of year. 
And that, of course, might bring a lot of questions to mind. How did they know that they needed a sacrifice? How did they know that was the right thing to do? What were the rules for sacrifice? We're not told how they know that, but the consistent witness of Scripture, and this would back it up, is that humans were made to worship. It's what we naturally do. So whether God told them to sacrifice or they just found it to be naturally appropriate, we don't know, but but we're being alerted to something. Not only is worship something we can't escape, we we got that from Genesis chapter 2, but sacrifice has been a proper part of the human experience, at least since we were banished from the Garden of Eden. Each of the, the two brothers brings a gift to the Lord from his work. Cain brings the produce of the land, and Abel brings the produce of the flocks. So far, everything seems pretty good. Again, things were bad at the end of chapter 3, but now the sons of Adam and Eve are worshiping God. They're bringing sacrifices. The mother is crediting the Lord for having a son. But at the end of verse 4, we realize that something's not okay. That's where we read, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So while God had been present up to this point, he's a bit in the background. They're crediting him, they're worshiping him, but he'd been silent. But now God speaks The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And God, he begins with these rhetorical questions of why Cain is so angry. Why are you so ashamed? He reminds Cain that his his good favor does not discriminate against anyone. That was an idea that's often been forgotten in human history and and even by those who wish to be known as God's people. When the apostle Peter preached the gospel to the Roman centurion named Cornelius, a non-Jew, even he was surprised in Acts 10 when this Roman soldier believes in Christ. And Peter exclaims, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So this wasn't about Cain. It's not like God just didn't like that man. But it was what he had done or what he had not done. God accepts all who fear him and do what is right. So we are left to conclude that Cain did not fear God or do what is right. God warns Cain that sin is crouching at the door like a lion or like a a viper curled up on the front porch of your house. Sin is poised to attack and consume him if he is not careful. There may even be a, a, a hint of like a demonic influence here. There's, there's some evidence of a belief in a demon 
known as the Croucher, who attacked in doorways. It's one of many possible parallels between this and chapter 3, and there's a lot of, of, of parallels. And if there's a hint, but maybe not directly stated, of a spiritual force behind these events, that would sound awfully familiar, wouldn't it? Do you see the, the similarities, though? Cain is being tempted to cross God's boundaries. And his anger and his shame are being used against him. In a similar way, his mother was tempted to transgress God's command, and her desire was used against her. This time, rather than maybe a spiritually corrupted serpent speaking words of temptation, God himself comes to speak to Cain. Not to tempt him, but to warn him, to slow his step, to encourage him toward righteousness. In both cases, the human is engaged with a question followed by a statement about what will happen to them if they act in a particular way. There's also a hint here of the curse that God spoke to Cain's mother. God tells Cain that sin's desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Those words many think are poetic, but they definitely bring to mind the words that God spoke to Eve in chapter 3, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. These ideas of desire and rule, they're, they're identical words in identical constructions. And this, this particular idea of desire shows up only two places in the Hebrew Bible, in those words to Eve in Genesis 3 and the words to Cain in Genesis 4. I didn't say much on this last week because there was already more than enough to say, but, but given the context, it seems like this is a, a desire for mastery. Because of the fall, marriages, which were part of God's blessing of companionship, those marriages were cursed with inevitably irreconcilable differences Eve would have a desire to master her husband rather than help him. And Adam would have a tendency to rule over her rather than serve alongside her. It's not the way things were meant to be. And those who were married, heck, anyone who's been in a serious dating relationship, will know you're going to fight one of two battles. You will either fight a battle for control over the relationship or you're going to fight a war against sin and fight for selflessness. But you're going to battle. It's just a question of which one you want to fight. The parallel is that sin itself has a desire to master Cain and each of us. And the only appropriate battle or the appropriate response, is to win the battle and rule over our sin. That's easier said than done. But the connections to his mom, 
and the threat of sin's mastery are a profound statement about how life works outside the garden, which is where we are right now. It's dangerous out there. And it's dangerous out there precisely because sin is just outside the door. Not so much the world, the door of my heart. Sin is right there. And that itself wouldn't be too bad, except that something in our hearts wants to open that door. We want to get bit. We live in a kill or be killed world. And as the Puritan John Owen famously wrote, be killing sin or it will be killing you. We've wondered, uh, many people have asked, why, what is it that Cain did so wrong? Why did God not find Cain's offering acceptable? And one of the things about the Hebrew Bible uh, is that it often speaks in what it doesn't say as much as it speaks in what it directly says. It, the, the authors seem to expect that you've read the thing, that you understand the context. And what it doesn't say is this. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the way that reads, especially if you've read the law and you read what God expects of his sacrifices that would come to him in the tabernacle and then later in the temple, Abel brought of his, the first and the best of his flock. And of that, he gave to God, he allowed God to have burnt on the altar the best part of that, the, the fat portions we, we may trim the fat on our meat, but, you know, if you live at a time where meat is a luxury, those calories are very valuable and they, they taste the best. So they knew that. They knew that. And you gave the best animals and the best parts of the best animals. That's what God deserved. And, and in light of that, Cain's offering sounds a lot like he just brought some stuff. He brought from the field. Not the first fruits of the harvest, not the best portion of his harvest, just some of his harvest. There is a, a, a way of trying to worship God that is just performative, that we're just going through the ritual, we're going through the process. We're following the steps that we think make us appear to be right with God or appear to be holy, but our heart often eventually gives us away. It gave away Cain. And God knows the heart even when our heart does not show up in our lives because some of us are really good hiders. Some of us are really good liars, even to our own selves. 
but God knows the heart. And he knows if we're going through the motions or whether our faith is actually a deep and abiding trust. So what now? What now? Cain speaks to his brother, and when they're in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Like his mother before him, he is described as sort of reaching out and acting on his wicked impulses without a word. The act isn't even the heart of the passage. It's sort of just stated matter-of-factly like a footnote in a history book. And now Cain resembles his father. God comes calling And as he once asked Adam, where are you? He now asked Cain, where is your brother? And once before, his father had shirked the responsibility. Adam told God the truth, but he shifted the blame from himself. Well, I I, I ate, but she gave it to me. Not Cain, though. Cain just lies. He lies to God and claims to have no idea where Abel is. He suggests that it's not even his responsibility. After all, is he his brother's keeper? Cain is actually a touch more incisive than that, a touch more even poetic in speaking about his brother Abel, the shepherd. He uses this verb keeper, which is often used to describe a person who keeps sheep or goat. Is Cain the shepherd's Shepherd? Cain's question is rhetorical, but the answer to that ancient question is yes. You are your brother's keeper. Moses and and Jesus taught us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And throughout the Old Testament, God's people were expected to look out for each other, look out for each other's property, to, to make full restitution when an accident happens that deprives a neighbor of property, to treat others equitably without any bias, to only speak truthfully to others. And in one of the most profound passages, the verse immediately before that love your neighbor piece, God says through Moses, this is Leviticus 19, 17, you must not hate your brother in your heart. You must surely reprove your fellow citizen or your neighbor so that you do not incur sin on account of him. We are called to warn and persuade our fellow human beings about sin and righteousness because a failure to do so could mean that sin falls on our own account. A failure to warn someone in danger puts us in danger of being guilty of hatred. It's one reason why we're called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ as Christians. There is a world of people out there who do not follow God, whose lives are running headlong into sin, whose eternal destinies are on the line because on the day of judgment they will be found guilty. What could be more loving than telling a person the bridge is out and they're about to plunge to their death, but you know the only safe passage? 
The same way there is nothing more loving for us to do than to show our neighbors, our, our brothers, our sisters, that there is a way of escape. That Jesus has borne our crimes on his body. And he has written our crimes onto his ledger and erased them from the balance statements of those who trust in the faith that produces repentance. Well, just like with his father, Cain, uh, God asks Cain about what he's done. But as before, God already knows the answer to the, the where question and the what question. He says as much. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. It's a simple but, but, but powerful reminder that God hears his people. God hears the injustice committed against his people. God knows. And God cares. Many, many years later, the author of the book of Hebrews would encourage Christians with the idea that Jesus, sprinkled blood, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? Abel's blood cried out to the ground, rescue me, pay back the guilty one. And Jesus' blood cries out, I am the rescuer. I am the one who pays for the guilty. Like his parents before him, Cain will hear God pronounce a curse. But something's quite different here. Adam wasn't cursed. Eve was not cursed. But their relationship was cursed, and their work in creation was cursed, both in uh, taking care of the earth and in uh, the, the prospect of being fruitful and multiplying was, was made painful. Those things weren't gone, but they would be much harder. But Cain himself is cursed by God. While Adam's work in caring for the ground was hard, Cain's work is going to be nearly fruitless. God says, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. Perhaps that's because he would be a wanderer and a fugitive, never able to settle down to do the long-term work necessary to produce a good crop. But his wandering has another element. As his parents were exiled from the garden, Cain is exiled from his family. Being cut off from God's family is a, a theme of, of, of punishment in Scripture that, that we can't get into this morning, but, but, but from Cain to the Israelites in the wilderness to Jesus' instructions in Matthew 18 to Paul's citation of Deuteronomy in 1 Corinthians 15, 13, those who do not fear God are separated from those who do. And it's a sad, terrible, horrible awful thing. But it's often a necessary thing. And Cain knows it. Perhaps it's a fate worse than death itself. My punishment is greater than I can bear, he says. And he worries that he'll be killed. And God, who would later explicitly allow for capital punishment in the case of unjust homicide, dooms Cain to suffer out his full life. They promises to mark him somehow. It's not explained how. It doesn't matter. So that anyone who might try to kill him 
would know and understand that the cost of doing so, the cost of adding more to Abel's blood would be terribly high. But maybe nothing is worse in this curse. In fact, I know that nothing is worse in this curse than Cain's realization in verse 14 that from your face I shall be hidden. His parents tried to hide from God's face, but it was impossible. God seeks out his children. But Cain was exiled from the people of God. He would be hidden. More meaningfully, from God himself. It would be as if God didn't see him anymore. God did not seek him out. He was not a child of God. And if that sounds harsh, notice that Cain never repents. He doesn't beg forgiveness. He doesn't say he's sorry for killing the man made in God's own image, his own brother. He's only worried about himself. And in a way, it was his concern for himself and his own pride that led him to kill his brother in the first place. He's only moved by his own plight. And he's, con he's consigned to wander this land called Nod, a, a land the, the name of which means wandering. The story, I said, it, it points us to the effect of sin on the family. Yeah, Adam and Eve's relationship was already harmed. But this is an escalation. A relationship was severed for a lifetime when Abel was murdered. But not just that relationship between Cain and Abel, but the relationship between Cain and his parents, Cain and his other siblings that we find out that he will have in chapter 5, Cain and really the whole earth. And Cain does finally find a family, but, but that's not a remedy because he's cut off from the family of faith. God was creating a family for himself from the beginning, and Cain broke himself from that family. Cain's story is a reminder of just how destructive sin can be. One sin ruined his entire life, and it caused pain and grief to his entire family. It was entirely preventable. He knew better. God warned him, but the drive to act on his passions was greater than his desire to serve God. And all of us will ultimately serve a master. The only question is whether it is sin or whether it is the Lord. If there was any hope in those first couple verses of chapter 4, but maybe the fallout from what Adam and Eve had done in chapter 3 wouldn't be too bad, there was no question now. Sin was going to wreak havoc on the human race. The family and human relations were broken. After God stopped speaking to Cain, Cain the, the genealogy resumes. 
Cain has a son named Enoch. Enoch has Irod and, and so on. But we pause briefly at the top and the bottom of this list. Cain or Enoch builds the first city. It's actually kind of hard to tell just from the Hebrew what's intended. There's actually good reason to think that it's Enoch, not Cain, who builds that city and names it after his son, Erod. But the idea is still the same. From Cain and his descendants come something that looks like civilization. We also read about Lamech's four children. They are, uh, three of them are sons, and they, and they take different professions. By his wife, Adah, he had two boys, Jabal, who was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock, and Jubal, who was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. And by his second wife, Zillah, he has a son named Tubal-Cain, who was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Now, when the Bible says the father of, in a context like this, where it's not talking about children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, that sort of thing, it means that the person was in some way the founder or the pioneer, and that those who take up after that person become his metaphorical children. For example, Jesus talks uh, to some religious leaders and, and calls them children of their father, the devil, meaning that they take after the devil. They do the devil's sinful works. It doesn't mean that the devil had kids. Uh, Paul can say that Christians are children of Abraham, even if they aren't Jews, because Abraham was in a way the pioneer of God-honoring faith that leads to being credited in God's eyes as righteousness. And so those who share in that faith become his children. So Genesis 4 doesn't mean that Jubal gave birth to a legion of music makers. It's saying that Jubal was a significant figure in pioneering the performance of music. And those who play the music today are, in a way, the children of Jubal. They follow in his footsteps. But here's something else. Whether it's nomadic living nomadic living or, or, or living in cities, whether it's trading and dealing in livestock or working a furnace to fashion metal, or whether it's providing relief from the drudgery of work with the beauties of the arts, all of it has been touched by the curse of Cain. The fact that such essential pieces of our culture were founded by direct descendants of Cain is an ominous sign. In the same way that we would be squeamish about Nazi artwork, even if it was masterfully done by someone who had just had exquisite talent, we would feel a little odd about enjoying it. The same way we might recoil at using a product or shopping at a store that, that we felt was too tightly connected to a person or institution that we found objectionable. The connection between such foundational works, the, the works to put meat on our tables and cell phones in our pocket and Spotify on those phones, 
the connection between those things and, and Cain should leave a sobering and sour note in our mouths as well. Culture has been impacted by sin. And there's no turning back. We need to say something more about Lamech. Lamech was the seventh generation from Cain, which in Hebrew thinking would be significant, a sense of completeness or fullness, for better or worse. And the first thing we learn about Lamech is that he has two wives. And their names uh, might hint at some sort of superficial attractiveness. So you might wonder what he's prioritizing in his life. Uh, but more importantly, it's the first recorded instance of polygamy. And it stands in sharp contrast to the very end of chapter 2, where we have one man, one woman in a relationship set up by God in the garden. Marriage is the bedrock of culture. It's the first and most foundational relationship in any society. Not all are called to marriage, but for those who are, they inherit a sacred institution. As goes marriage, so goes culture. And Lamech was certainly promoting a deplorable culture. Adam and Eve's marriage was harmed by sin, by, but Lamech bastardizes the institution of marriage itself. Now, Lamech wouldn't be the last polygamist, and in the whole hierarchy of sins, it's not really that close to the top. A handful of rather faithful men did practice it, but the standard set up in Genesis 2 is the backdrop of all those stories. And Jesus himself would point to Genesis 2 as the foundational paradigm, the standard by which our marriages could be assessed. And so it's always been starting from the very beginning of the first book of the Bible. It becomes the context that should always be on the reader's mind when we read about Abraham or Jacob or David, reminding us that these men, despite their faith, still fell short of God's holiness. The contrast, though, of Lamech in chapter 4, so close to the garden in chapter 2, only underscores just how quickly things have gone from bad to worse. But the curse of sin is highlighted even more by Lamech's words. Taking the time to craft poetry, it would seem, Lamech flagrantly boasted about his own murderous ways. We could read his words a couple ways, but I think the most natural way to take them is this. Uh, in a sick and perverted twist on the idea of Cain's mark, which was a reminder that God would punish someone who harmed Cain sevenfold, Lamech takes God out of the equation and brags that he himself, not God, will take vengeance 77-fold for even a slight offense. Maybe, and this thought came to me late, so take this for what it's worth, but the, but the fact that we get this in, in verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, 
That's a weird thing to say to your wives. Was this intended to be a threat to them? As if to say, you know what I've done to others, so watch out. If you offend me, if you slight me, if you injure me in any way, I will hurt you severely. Maybe that's a stretch. I, I don't know that it is. And it would certainly be the perfect foil of the helping side-by-side -side unity once present in the garden between a man and a woman that Lamech is perhaps the first known abuser. The point is this. With Lamech, we're left with the strong impression that the curse of sin isn't getting better. If anything, it's getting worse, and it's getting worse quickly. Things are spiraling out of control. And we can only wonder where they will go next. Maybe that sounds familiar. Our world promises us salvation, though, doesn't it? Technology will fix your problems. AI will solve it. Plug in your headphones. Forget the stress of this world. Maybe if you just know a little bit more, there's a tutorial for that. And social media is going to make our world smaller and closer-knit. We're all going to be friends. Technology always promises, and it's always coming up short. Medicine promises to save us, cures, long life. We could just cure cancer if we spent more on it, maybe. And then we're reminded that a new disease is born every day, and all it takes is one pathogen to knock down our entire society again. Maybe it's relationships. We're told if we just find the right husband, if we just find the right wife, the right boyfriend, the right girlfriend, everything will be okay. Or maybe it's this party, this politician, they'll save you. Or maybe it's your career, your title, your education, your bank account. That will be your rescue. But the truth is these are empty hopes. Salvation is not there. As Paul wrote, in Romans 8, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation itself is in the bonds of corruption. That's what sin does. It corrupts. And each of us adds to that bondage even while thinking that something in this enslaved universe is going to be what sets us free. That's ironic, and it's a lie. And Genesis 4 reminds us of the sobering truth that sin's general trajectory is not to get better, 
It's not even to balance out. Instead, in, in fits and starts, sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly, sometimes very rapidly, this will only get worse. But I don't want to end on that note, and, and thankfully our, our passage doesn't either. Uh, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. To Seth was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. From death and despair came life. Life carried on, but also worship. Calling on God's name is a, is a metaphor for worship, and probably the, the intention is that organized, regular worship began to take place in Enosh's day, because obviously worship was going on before that. That's why Cain and Abel were offering sacrifices. But the fact that people were calling on the name of the Lord tells us at least two things. First, amidst the growing mastery of sin over the human race, over the sin of our hearts, God was not forgotten. Not entirely. And second, belatedly, there was hope. A few thousand years later, a prophet named Joel, a short little book in the Old Testament, would encourage the Israelites that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved from God's righteous judgment of sin. Somehow, God would rescue a people. Somehow, God would save a people. Cain may have been hidden from God, but not everyone would be. There would be those who find him, who call on his name and are saved. And while it's not clear in Genesis 4 the full answer to that question, how will God save a people? That hope was in place that God would be on a rescue mission for his wayward creation and he would save them. That is our hope. Let's pray. Father, we, we who are called by your name, who call upon your name, we cling to that hope. May your name not leave our mouths, but may we stand firm in this faith. May we stay sober-minded about the reality of sin, its corrupting power and its influence, alert to the lie of our world that this or that will save us. Like the prisoner saying he knows how to live free. Thank you, Father, that you have shown us something better. You have shown us something of the hope that can be found in Jesus Christ.
that you have been on a mission to rescue us and you have given us that blood which speaks a better word, that speaks, I pay for the guilty because we are guilty. And Father, we pray for those who do not enjoy that hope, who are living for that lie of this world, that there is salvation just around the corner at that bank statement of of that relationship, of that date on the calendar, of that piece of technology, that their hope will be shattered if it is only in what's what's in this world. Father, would you show them that more than anything, they need you. They need to not be hidden, but they need to come to the light who is the word, who is Jesus, who reveals us and shows us who we are. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's call on the name of the Lord.